Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10. Um, I know that it does seem like the entire time that we've been in this building, which is pretty much a month now, um, we've been in the same chapter of the book of Acts, which is almost entirely true. Um, and we actually will have one more week in the book of Acts next week before we jump into Christmas and Advent season. Um, but today we are in Acts chapter 10, verse 34 to 43. And uh, Jeremy Ampel is going to read this passage um, for us. Um, and so I'm going to invite you to stand with us out of reverence for God's word as it's read aloud. Um, we're in Acts, Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is, is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace, through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. Word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Uh, let's, let's pray together before we jump in. Jesus, there is no one like you. Great is your faithfulness. You have died on the cross but risen in victory. Lord, I pray that as we come to your word, we pray as your church, as your people, we pray that you would reveal the depths of what you have done. In the death you have died, in the victory that you have won, Lord, show us the beauty and the glory of this truth, of who you are and what you have done. Lord, we need the Spirit's help and the Spirit's power, and so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be gracious to us to understand your word and not just understand it, but to believe it, to receive it in faith and to walk forward in it, in a way that this world would see the light and the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in the name of the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit and to the glory of the God the Father. Amen. 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 I, I am really excited to jump into this passage today. Um, I want to remind you before we get going um, where we've been so far in Acts chapter 10, right? We have Peter and Cornelius. Peter, the apostle, right? Peter, one of the men who followed Jesus around on the earth for three years and then one of the 12 apostles that was sent out in Acts chapter 1 to go and be witnesses to the world for what Christ had done, not just in his ministry, but in his death in his resurrection, in his ascension, in what would come later on. And Cornelius is a non-Jewish person, and that's really important, because up until now, from Pentecost, when the book of Acts starts, um, up until now, it's been 10 years, and really only Jewish people have been within Christianity. 
It started within the Jewish community, but God had his sights set on the whole world and not just a little piece of land in the Middle East. And so God has begun to break um, the, the boundaries of Christianity out into the whole world. And that's what we're witnessing. That's why we've said, I think, multiple times, this is one of the most important chapters in all of scripture and all of church history, because otherwise, there would be a whole lot of holes in our minds as to how do we, as non-Jewish people, right? Most of us in the room are probably, probably have zero um, Jewish heritage in us. Maybe some of us have some or a lot, but the question would remain, how do any of us have a claim on the Israel Messiah? Like, why, why does that matter for any of us? And this chapter shows how beautiful it is that God brought non-Jewish people and Jewish people together under one Savior. Really, this chapter shows us that Jesus meant what he said in Acts chapter one. Jesus said to the disciples, right before they became apostles, he said, look, the Holy Spirit is gonna come upon you and you'll be given power from most high and then you will be sent out as my witnesses to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, AKA all of Israel, and to the ends of the earth. This chapter is proof that Jesus was not lying or making that up, that he meant what he said that Peter was sent to Cornelius because this Israelite Messiah was not just for Israel but for the whole world. And so today, one of the reasons I'm excited to dig into this is not just because it is good um, gospel truth for us to remember, but also because it sort of highlights some really important and glorious truths about the good news of Jesus that we have to focus on. It also shows us how important it is that we have an accurate understanding of the gospel. We don't have like a vague idea about what is this good news about Jesus, right? God sent Peter to them so that they could hear the actual explicit truth about what the gospel was, what the gospel is, right? He didn't want them to just kind of be guessing about what's the deal with this Israel Messiah? What should we believe in? What did he do? Now God wants them and he wants us to have clarity about that because it is important news. <laughs> So we're gonna go just kind of verse by verse through this passage, um, and then we'll just kind of sum it all up at the end. But I'm also gonna warn you that there will be a fair amount of um, scriptures that I'm gonna throw out that probably, that, that they're not gonna be on the screen. I know that because I was in charge of the slides and they're not on there. Because as I was going through it, we just kept on, I just kept on seeing how, um, how these tied to other passages. So I wanna encourage you to write those down when I mention them. Some of them might come too quickly for you to maybe turn in your Bible, although you're always welcome to do that, but to write them down and consider them throughout the week. So in verse 34, let's dig into 34 and 35. So remember that Peter had just been told the verse ahead of this by Cornelius, we are standing here in the presence of God to hear everything that you've been commanded by the Lord. And so everything that Peter says is the thing that God commanded him to say. That's what Peter is answering. It's a question that he's answering. He said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now what is Peter saying there? What is he saying there? He's saying um, your Bible, the, if you have a KJV Bible, if you just know, if you've been in the church a lot, you might have this phrase memorized in your head, God is no respecter of persons. Probably not many of us talk that way, but it's, um, it's a well-known phrase in a, the King James Version of the text. It means that God doesn't care about demographics. 
God doesn't respect this group of people or that, verse, that group of people based on the demographics that they, they make up. It doesn't mean that God denies the existence of demographics, right? God made the fullness of humanity with all of its different um, heritages and skin colors and cultures and all that stuff. So it doesn't just say that God just doesn't believe that exists or that that has no value or, or beauty in it, but it is to say that none of those things is what makes someone acceptable or favored by God. What God cares about is holiness. What God cares about is people that are seeking him, even if they're seeking him on one side of the planet or the other. Whether they're seeking him from um, honor as uh, honor or riches or nobility, prestige, a good or a bad family lineage, whether it's high job titles or low job titles, whether it's skin color or nationality, whether it's degrees that you've accumulated in school or how much success you have racked up in your career, God does not choose whom he loves based on the things that so often we as humans choose you know, based on. We esteem other people all the time for how similar they are to us, how much they fit the ideal of a person to us. If they seem to have things of value, God doesn't work that way. The favor of God comes by sovereign and unconditional grace. Unconditional grace, meaning that there's no condition in the person that merits his favor. There's nothing about you or me that could ever be so great that deserves God, deserves God's affection. That might beg a question in our mind, which is, well, hold on. I mean, in the Old Testament, he clearly loved Israel, right? He clearly chose Israel, right? So did God, you know, sort of respect persons or did God uh, show partiality in the Old Testament and now he just decided to stop doing that in the New? That's a fair question, but we have to remember something that Jesus, that God said, and Deuteron God the Father said in Deuteronomy 7 through the prophet Moses. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8. It says, he says this, it was not because, he's speaking to Israel, it is not because you were more numerous, powerful, or holy, sort of paraphrasing the verse a little bit, but God is saying it's not because, Israel, there was something lovable about you that I chose to love you and deliver you from Egypt. Instead, it was because I chose to love you and I had made a promise and I was gonna be faithful to it. So even Israel in the Old Testament, God didn't choose them because there was something special about Israel, right? When it all started with Abraham, it wasn't because Abraham was some great, great man that deserved God's favor. It wasn't because Moses or Joshua or the people of Israel deserved it, no. God chose Israel because he wanted to choose a nation that could be his witness. In, in Deuteronomy, he actually calls them the least of all the peoples. He's like, you actually, you had nothing going for you but I chose you because he wanted them to be a witness, right? Israel was not the purpose of their own choosing. God didn't choose Israel because the goal of history was to focus things on Israel. God chose Israel as a means to bringing the Messiah into the world so that all peoples could have a Messiah. And so God's work in Israel throughout history was to bring the nations in. In Isaiah chapter two, right at the beginning of Isaiah chapter two, it says that in the latter days, the mountain of the Lord, the Mount of Zion, will be built up and all the nations will stream to it. 
That's prophetic and figurative language, not talking about um, something that's in the future for us, but something in the present for us, that these latter days are the days of the Messiah, the days that began when Christ um, died, rose again, and ascended to the heavens. And so we are part of the nations streaming to the, the, the prophetic, the figurative mountain of God, the spiritual city of God. We see that in Hebrews, we see that repeated in the book of Revelation as well. And so who is in that city of God? It's not just Israelites, it's anyone who fears God and does righteousness, as Peter says here. That is not to say, we can't get this twisted, this is not saying that as long as somebody is a general religious person and they try to, they fear some vague idea about God, they believe that some kind of God exists, so they try to be a good person, they try to fear him, they try to do, gener- they try to do good things, that somehow then God kind of doesn't even care about what religion people are part of as long as they sort of fear this idea of God. It's talking about nations and people groups. It's not talking about religions. It's talking about fearing the true God and doing what is right according to that true God. But there's one problem with that. Romans chapter three quotes both Psalm 14 and 53. So this is mentioned three times in scripture. All right, I would tell you then that this is an important truth for us to remember. None is righteous, oh boy. No, not one. None seek him. And it finishes by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So we have God saying, Peter says, right, speaking for God, he says, God accepts anyone who fears him and does righteousness. And then we read in other parts of the Bible, bad news, none of us fear him, none of us do righteously. So what is required then to make us acceptable is not something that you and I have. What is required that would make us acceptable before God is not something that you and I have in ourselves. The great news about the grace of God, about it being unconditional, undeserved, unmerited, is that the grace of God actually supplies what is required to make us acceptable to God. In the gospel, what we have is that God comes to us in our need, telling us this is what you must have to be in the presence of God. This is what you must have to be forgiven and acceptable to God. And because we can't meet even the tiniest bit of it, he gives it. And he gives us not only forgiveness of our sins, but his grace also puts a new heart in us. One that does fear him, one that does follow his commands. Ezekiel 37 is a good um, passage to read on that. And that's the first truth for us to remember about the gospel today, that the gospel is for all people equally because all people are equally undeserved. And because no one earns their way back to God or makes themselves worthy, then the gospel is the story of God making unworthy people worthy. The gospel is the story of the unconditional, undeserved, unmerited grace of God. Look at verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching, the good, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, 
how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This good news that God sent out, he first sent to the Jews, again, not only for them, but to send it through them to the world. Right, it was first sent to Israel, meaning that Christ literally showed up in the land of Israel. They were the first people to hear about the Messiah. But I love how the good news is characterized here. He says, I hope you caught this, preaching good news of peace. Sort of that Peter summarizes the gospel as an, a news of peace which is a ridiculous statement because none of us, as we just talked about, none of us, no fear of God before our eyes, no one who does good, no, no one who seeks him, no one acceptable to him. Romans 3, Psalm 14, Psalm 53 all said they, speaking of all humility, have become worthless, which is tough news. But then we have this news that there is news of peace. Peace, not with, not with mankind sort of figuring out in our own human strength how to like live and have world peace together, but peace in a much more important sense, peace made between creator and creation. And the forgiveness of the gospel is there to bring about peace. So in a real way, for the forgiveness of the gospel is not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is not just forgiving people. The point of the gospel is forgiving people so that we can be restored to peace and favor and life with God. And so Peter, it's amazing now, Peter jumps into this story and he assumes that they know the facts. He said, you yourselves know. You guys are devout, God-fearing Gentiles. I'm sure you've been keeping up with the news that has happened in Jerusalem. But he does go there and he recognizes that God doesn't need, need him to simply report the facts to them, but he needs to explain to them why those facts matter. Just like in our day, I think lots of the people in that room sort of knew the outline of the story of Jesus. And just like here in our town and where we are, a lot of people know sort of the outline or the idea of what Jesus has done. But because often of how the church have, has sort of failed in witness, they maybe haven't has, had that pressed into them to know why it's so vital and important. And so Peter speaks about how this began with John the Baptist and the baptism of repentance that John the Baptist was preaching. And then Christ one day came and he was baptized by John the Baptist. And it says there that he was anointed with power in the Holy Spirit. Two important things about that verse. This is a little technical, but I want us to understand it because it's really important. The first is that Jesus was not anointed in a sense that he was lacking godness or power, like he was some kind of regular human and the Holy Spirit comes upon him and now he's the son of God. And Jesus wasn't lacking in power. Instead, the, the Holy Spirit if you remember that scene of the baptism of Christ, you can read about it in the book of Luke and in the book of Matthew. The, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in visible form and God spoke from heaven to emphasize the fact that he was the Son of God. Not to make him the Son of God, not to give him power that somehow the sovereign God of the universe didn't already have, but instead to make it clear to everyone, this is the prophet, this is the Messiah, this is the Savior that has been sent. 
So instead of this, maybe some people might twist this to be sort of a, a text that sort of means that Jesus was, is not um, truly God or that he isn't eternally God, he isn't part of the Trinity because he had to have the Holy Spirit rest on him. Instead, this is an allusion to the fact that when Jesus was baptized, we saw all three members, all three um, persons of the Trinity at work. So we actually see a tremendous unity in God, not um, a separation of Jesus from God. And after that, Jesus went about and he did miracles all through the countryside. But the great news about the gospel is that it's far more than a story about a good moral teacher who did miraculous things to people in the first century. And so Peter goes on in verse 39, and we, speaking of the apostles, are all are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. This history that Peter is giving leads us to the cross, but there's a really specific phrase, uh, phrase used here in verse 39. He says, they put him to death not, not hanging on a cross, it says they put him to death hanging on a tree. Now why would Peter say that? You can turn to Galatians chapter three, it's not too far um, in your Bible. Um, one of the earlier um, letters in your Bible, just a little bit to the right. In Galatians chapter three, we, have, we, we know now why Peter used this phrase, because that phrase of being hung on a tree is something that is spoken of multiple times in the Bible. Galatians chapter three, starting in verse 10, says this, for all who rely on the works of the law, all who rely to be righteous before God by doing moral deeds and by observance to his law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be anyone, everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. So you need 100% obedience and perfection inside and outside all the time and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified, no one is made right before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. That's quoting um, the book of Hebrews and the book of Habakkuk. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, the law, shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for this. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through Faith. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's a, that was spoken by God first in Deuteronomy chapter 21, ages and ages and ages ago. And so Peter is saying here something really specific about what Christ did on the cross. He did not just die for your mistakes and your accidents, the ways that we have messed up, Jesus didn't die because we had some kind of um, light sentence hanging over our heads like five years and then parole or something like that. Jesus died because there is a curse for sin. There's a, a, a curse for sin that sin brings about an identity of being cursed by God and that's not because God is 
evil. That's not because God is mean. That's not because God just enjoys bringing about this judgment. Instead, it's an expression of the fact that when you are perfectly holy, you can't just acquit the guilty. You can't just act like guilty stuff isn't guilty. If you do, right, if we saw a judge today in a courtroom who knew all the facts of a case and he knew that this guy was guilty and he just said, ah, I don't care, gone, you're fine, walk free. That's not just a kind and merciful judge, that's an evil judge. And so it is with God, and so there's a curse that gets brought down for sin. I just want us to think about that for a moment, that what Jesus did on the cross was taking upon himself a curse that was deserved by you and me. It's not merely that he suffered, it's that he suffered the cursing of God in our place so that you and I who have actually earned the curse of God, you and I who have actually gone astray, we've actually not feared him, we've actually not followed him, we've actually turned away, you and I who have earned the curse of God can instead look at the cross and we can see the curse of God put on him. The one who is the law giver takes the curse for breaking the law so that the lawbreakers, you and me, are completely free. Do you understand how great of news it is that all of the curse of God was poured out on the cross? Not like 95% of it, not 99% of it, all of the curse of God for all of our sin poured on Jesus Christ. I hope you understand how free that makes you in him. And I also want you to see how if you don't have him, then you have the curse. You must have Jesus Christ. But the story of Christ goes even farther than simply his death. If you look at verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him. This is a true bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's not a ghost. He is a real living um, human being who has been raised from the dead as we will be. Look at verse 41 there, or verse 40. The story of Christ is not just the story of Jesus Christ taking the curse. The story of Christ is not just the story of Jesus suffering the curse. The story of Jesus Christ is the story of him breaking and destroying the curse. He didn't just suffer through it. He didn't just um, take it upon himself as a sacrificial lamb. He actually destroyed it and broke it and threw it down to the ground as he rose over it in victory not just so that his people, but even all of creation could be raised up from out of the curse to perfection in him. Romans 4.25 says this, for he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So there's something about the resurrection of Jesus that actually fully proves and satisfies the righteous requirement of God 
So as we look at Christ, we're not only looking at his sacrifice on the cross, we're looking at an empty tomb as proof of the fact that our, the righteousness that God requires, the fearing the Lord and doing what is acceptable and righteous before him, as you see an empty tomb, you see that that requirement is actually filled and it's given to you. And this is not some kind of debatable point of history. This is a absolutely true point of history of a man who was the son of God who was raised from the dead and had countless witnesses to him all according, all according to the scriptures. But the good news actually continues on from here. Verse 42, and he commanded us, Christ commanded us, the apostles, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And John 5, says this, this is Jesus speaking, for the father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son. So Christ stands as savior, as Messiah, as forgiver of sin, but he also stands as judge. There's no other God, there's no other judge, there's no higher judge. Instead, there is this one Son of God, Jesus Christ, who will judge all people, both the living and the dead. There's no one who, there's no people group, demographic, who escapes that. There's no one who will not stand before him one day. So don't get the identity of Jesus mixed up here. He's not just a man. Not just a righteous man, but just like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, he is perfectly eternal and he stands as judge for all people forever. As Peter said earlier on, he is Lord of all. I wonder if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, have you considered that? This is not just a, a thing that is like a, a fear tactic. This is just the truth, that one day every single one of us will be before him. We will be standing before him and we will have to have righteousness to not be cast out. And I wonder if you have considered that, if you, if you do believe in Christ, then do you also communicate the gospel to others and include this part? Because this is the unfriendly part. This is more the part that people don't want to hear. That it's not just news about how to have a better life and, and maybe have your life more put together and heal your marriage up or get your kids to be more obedient or you know, have all the dreams that you would like to accomplish in life. It actually is divinely important because you will stand before him as judge. And we need to actually preach the gospel with that included. Because otherwise, why does any of it matter? It's not just about living a moral life on earth. This is about eternal destiny of image bearers of God. And no one gets graded on a curve on that day. So your friends, my friends, our family members, where we're like, well, I think they know Christ and they're pretty good people. It's not a curve. There's not a 90% rule. They need Christ, the real and true Christ. There's one way for us to be acceptable before this judge. There's one way to gain peace as through the, through the forgiveness of sins, verse 43. To him, all the prophets, everything in the Old Testament, 
What Peter is saying here is everything that came before now, every single thing was all bearing witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What a verse that is. Who did it, who did it say is qualified to receive the forgiveness of sins? Who, who did it say is in here? What's the, what's the word to use? It said everyone, right? Everyone, anyone, everybody, anybody. Doesn't matter if they come from just generations and generations of sin and sinfulness. It doesn't matter if they come in off of 50 years of the most horrific sins that we could imagine. It doesn't matter if, they, if they've come in and they've, and they've sort of tried to walk with Christ a few times or something and they just can't seem to get it right and they're, they're still falling into their sin. It doesn't matter if anybody has disqualified themselves from the world's grace. It doesn't matter if there is something about, even if there's just one thing that is so shameful and so broken and so sinful that that, that person believes there's nothing in the world that could ever take that away. It doesn't matter for you today if you have a million and one skeletons in the closet that you hope nobody ever finds. Things that you could never repay, things that you could never own up to, things that you could never ever imagine being taken off of your shoulders. It doesn't matter how great the sin is in a person's life, the Lord Almighty, the one who judges, the one who sits in judgment says, come to me, everyone, everyone, and receive forgiveness of sins. So we don't have to hide the seriousness of sin in order to like be kind about the good news or to be polite to people. No, we have to be actually entirely truthful about how horrific sin is because we need to know that our sin in our lives and the sin in other people's lives is not just a different way of living and it's not just a way in which um, people have chosen to express themselves. It's not just a way in which they're trying to make themselves happy and it's not that big of a deal. No, we must know that the sin in our lives is actually something that brings about a curse that we will stand before God one day and we will have to ask the question, what has been done with the curse? And as we are so clear about that, and I hope today, if you don't believe in Christ, I hope today that you see that the seriousness of this sin is not just an exercise in feeling guilty. Instead, of it's, it's seeing the seriousness of sin so that we would understand how much we have been forgiven in Christ. Because all of that sin on the other side of the cross is completely and totally gone. Every single ounce of it. All not by obeying the law like Galatians talked about, not by you observing religious deeds and doing religious stuff. By simple trust in Jesus Christ. Not by just knowing him, not by just knowing the story of Christ, and not even maybe by agreeing that it may be true, but by knowing it, by believing, and also trusting in it, casting yourself and all that you have upon him. That is the only, that is this such a low, low bar, right? To clear, to be acceptable to God. 
And again, in his grace, it's the repentance that he provides. These are the great truths about the gospel. That there once was no peace, no peace at all. Alienation and hostility, as Colossians 1 talks about, between God and man, there was no peace at all. And now, through Christ, there can be peace. And for believers in Christ, there is nothing but peace between you and God. And not only that, but there is this Lord of all, that the Savior that has brought this salvation to us is not a weak and wimpy and tiny Savior. He is the King, the Lord of all people everywhere. And that this news comes to all people, doesn't matter about their demographic or their background. This news is for all people, but it is still exclusive to the one Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this news provides forgiveness and righteousness and and even more so, this news conquers death. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day. Jesus Christ is the Lord and judge for all people everywhere, but listen, he is also the savior bringing forgiveness and freedom and life and peace to his people. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, you are such a perfect savior. We praise you today for what you have done to reconcile us back to yourself and we pray that we as your people would hate sin and run to the savior. Lord, we wanna be used that those around us would see the glory of Jesus Christ shining through us. So Lord, we need to get out of the way and we need you to increase that we as a church as a whole would be out of the way and that Christ would be seen and we as individuals would get out of the way and let Christ be seen. Please, according to your great mercy, your sovereign, perfect, unconditional, unmerited grace, please work that into us. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, amen.